Welcome to How Publishing Works, from Caxton to Kindle. My name is Kate MacDonald, and today I'm in conversation with Dennis Duncan of University College London, author of, among other books, Index, A History of The. So welcome, Dennis. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. So I've got four basic questions to start with. The first one is what is an index? Well, I think an index is essentially a, a table, uh, um, a table with two columns, one of which we're able to navigate. So one of which has an ordering system that we know, um, usually alphabetical order. We know that the, the, the way to find something in an alphabetical list um, and one of which points off somewhere else. So we're able to navigate something that we don't know the order of, whether that's a, a bookshelf or, or a book, um, by use of a column that we do know the order of. So, I mean, it, it, index is sort of, we can think of the index finger, the idea of pointing. An index is a table that will point us in the, in the mass of data that we can't find our own way around um, by using the column in the table that we can find our way around because we recognize the order right and because we're only talking about indexes in printed books can you tell me the earliest known index and also the earliest known printed index when did they emerge right good well i i, I can and uh, those are two questions i'm going to give you three answers the earliest known index well the index was invented twice simultaneously around about the year 1230. It was invented once in Paris, and it was invented also in Oxford. It's a bit like sort of VHS and Betamax. It's one of those sort of inventions that that, uh, that the moment is ripe, so, so two people are doing slightly different versions of the same thing at the same time. So what we have in Paris is a Dominican friary just on the outskirts of the city walls of Paris. Now, now what is uh, uh, just where, where the Pantheon is on, on the left bank, uh, the Dominicans had built a friary around about the years sort of 1218 and one of the, the, the very early abbots there is a man called Hugh of Sancher. Sancher is a, a, a village in the south of France now. Hugh comes and starts to run the friary in the year 1230 and one of the projects that he puts his Dominican friars to is making a word index of the Bible. What I mean by a word index is um, this is what we would now call a concordance. So he gets the friars to divide up the Bible into every single word, 10,000 different words, and alongside each word, he gets them to list all of the places in the Bible where that occurs. Now, this is interesting because we we, the, the, we don't have chapter and verse in the same way that, that we do now. That uh, hasn't really been invented yet. Chapters have just been invented also in Paris about 30 years before, around about 1204, um, by an Englishman, a chap called Stephen Langton, who'd go on to become Archbishop of Canterbury. He's been studying in Paris, teaching in Paris at the turn of the 13th century, and divides the Bible up into the chapters that we now use, uh, the, the sort of common standard chapters. Now, so Hugh gets his friars to use these chapters. And also every chapter, he says, you can divide up into seven equal chunks. So if it's a long chapter, then there'll be seven big chunks. If it's a short chapter, there'll be seven short. And you can call these A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, and so if you say, well, it's in John 1, E, that means it's in the book of John, chapter one, and a little bit past the middle. 
So you see what I mean? Everything is sort of divided. Mm -hmm. So 10,000 words, every single word that appears apart from the very short ones, apart from the sort of prepositions and so on, and all of the instances, they appear down to the, the smallest division being a seventh of a chapter. And we still have the uh, sort of surviving fragments of the notes that these these monks took, the friars uh, uh, took. These are um, were discovered in binding waste um, in a library in Paris at the start of the 18th century. Oh, what, what is binding waste? Oh, that's a good question. Well, uh, um, it's, but because in the days of parchment, when writing had to be done on animal skin, this is before paper um, in Western Europe, um, parchment's quite expensive. It's quite a rare resource. Now, you can't make an index, unfortunately, without uh, having a, an intermediate step, a, a sort of note step, a rough version where you're crossing things out and inserting things. So indexes produce waste parchment. Rather than wasting things, people would recycle it. So you would give your waste parchment to uh, a bookbinder who would then take this parchment, mm. um, take a few pieces of it and compress it into a firm cover for a book. So we find that quite a lot of early books are bound with bits of other books, bits that maybe the bookseller didn't sell, um, bits during the Reformation that that were uh, deemed uh, no longer oh, heretical and were going to be uh, torn up. So these, these turn into waste, which is then used for binding. And if you take apart the binding of an early book, um, very often you find manuscripts, um, sometimes medieval manuscripts that uh, that we don't have other copies of. Some uh, books we only know about because of yeah. uh, mm. taking apart the bindings of other books and finding that, that, that books are made of other books. So we have binding waste in, in a library, the Bibliothèque Mazarine in the, uh, on the left bank of, of Paris, that's made of the, the notes that these friars were, were making to produce the first index to the Bible. And it's funny, they're full of crossings out. To, to put something into, into an alphabetical list, you're constantly going, oh, God, I need to find space there. So they've crossed things out. They've written things in like small little letters. The handwriting changes between letters. So it's kind of like, well, Kevin, you do the letter S, uh, Chris. I, I, I'm, I'm not very good at medieval names. Uh, Chris, <laughs> do. you do the letter T. And we find, OK, you, this is the way the division of labour happened, that different friars were doing different letters of the alphabet. Your job is to read the Bible, but only pick out the words that start with T and then try to put them into an alphabetical list and then we'll copy it out in neat. So it's an incredible project. It's We don't quite know how many people are working on it, probably dozens and dozens of friars over a period of several years, around about the year 1230. And so what we end up with is, uh, is, a, is an index to the Bible, a word index to the Bible. And this is terrific because if you're producing sermons, the reason the Dominicans are interested in this is because rather than being monks, I... Uh, mistakenly called the monks earlier, but monks live in monasteries in isolated communities, and their only job is to be very religious and to read the Bible to themselves. Friars go out into the community; they live in the cities. Like I said, the friaries just on on the, the the wall at the outskirts of Paris, and the friars have to go out and preach. The friars are making sure that the ordinary people, like like you and I, Kate, don't don't go off and become Cathars or, 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 you know, don't don't stray from the path. And they do that by preaching sermons. And in order to pre preach interesting sermons, you have to find a kind of dynamic way of telling a story about what God wants us to do. Index of the Bible allows people to construct exciting, interesting sermons. You go, I'm going to do a sermon today about bread, okay, or panis. Um, so I'm going to look up 
bread in my index and it says, okay, well, you could start off with give us this day our daily bread. And then you might want to jump back into the Old Testament into to Exodus where we have the, uh, the bread of heaven. Um, coming down and then maybe we can jump back into the New Testament with the bread the loaves and fishes there's a miracle everybody so suddenly you have this sermon that's jumping all over the place that's keeping people excited that's that that has interesting stories so that is the Paris index what about the other one that was developed at the same time that's right. In in Oxford we have a man called Robert Grosstest Grosstester um, which is either his surname um, or possibly it's his nickname. He, he has very sort of humble beginnings. We don't really know much about his family. And Grosteste, maybe not coincidentally, means big head in French. Um, and the thing that we know about him from, from the earliest records of Robert's appearance, he was sent to school by a local nobleman. He was discovered and he was sent to, uh, to work for a bishop. Everybody who encounters the young Robert goes, my God, he knows everything. So the idea that Robert big head, Robert's sort of capacious intellect mm. um could well just be a nickname might maybe not his his real name and he goes on to have this stellar career he possibly goes to learn or perhaps to teach in paris and when we rediscover him in his 40s he is uh, chancellor of, of uh, oxford university um which is which is just sort of forming around that time because he's read everything he's robert the big head robert who whose uh, brain can encompass everything he's read all of the Bible, of course, all of the uh, the church fathers. He's also read other types of sort of pagan scholarship. He's read Aristotle. He's translated Aristotle. He's also interested in Arabic philosophy. He's he's basically a sort of walking Google. He's, he's Robert who knows everything. And if you've read everything, you need to have a good method of recall. And what Robert has discovered is that as he's reading his books, he's going to keep a list of the topics that he considers the most important ones. These are the things he might want to go back to. These are the subjects, the 440 subjects that he's interested in. So he writes them out. And for each subject, he comes up with a little illustration, like a tiny little doodle. It might be three dots to indicate the Trinity, or it might be a flower to indicate the imagination, basically a kind of glyph or emoticon for all of the subjects that he's interested in. And as he reads, Every time one of these subjects comes up in the margin, he just does that little glyph. So uh, here's something about dreaming. I'm just going to do a little flower here. When he gets to the end of the book, he can run his finger down. That, so his margins, we, we, some of some of his old, his old copies of, of, of Augustine um, are still in the Bodleian, his 13th century manuscripts. And you can see in the margins, it's just full of this kind of like stream of emoticons running down the margins as he encounters these topics every page has got sort of multiple um, little glyphs written in the margins and what he'll do afterwards he's got a, a table with headings each of these things one page for each of these things here's imagination here's the trinity here's the concept that god exists um, and he'll run his finger down the margin and he'll go okay you're custom city of god book four page 14 Actually, he doesn't say page, but we'll come to that. And he'll just do a little note there. So what he ends up with is what he calls his grand tabula, his great table, or his index to everything, not just one book, um, but everything he's read. And he, he has read everything. So, sorry, back to your original question, Kate. What we have then is in the year 1230, two versions of the book index invented at the same time. One is a word index to one book. So in Paris, they've invented an index to one book, to the Bible, which is at the word level. 
And in Oxford, we have what what we would probably call a subject index. Um, these these concepts might come up under different words, um, but he's still identified. Here's that subject, and it's not just to one book; it's to uh, all the books. And they're both manuscript. So when is the first printed index? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know. But the first one that we know about, um, we can see in 1470. So one of the things that that might have come up in in this series of podcasts is that the early printed books uh, kind of hide their light under a bushel. The early printed books are supposed to look like manuscripts, even though it's an incredible invention. We're talking about the the middle of the 1450s that Gutenberg uh, um, invents the the movable type and the printing press. Um, But because everybody knows what books are supposed to look like, the early printed books try to look like manuscripts. Ah, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, so uh, um, so the fact that, uh, I mean, early typefaces kind of look like handwriting and they're, they're, they're sold on the idea that, no, this isn't, this may be cheaper for us to produce, but it's just as good. And so they leave space sometimes for for um, people to do handwritten illuminated initials and, and stuff like that. They're supposed to look like what you would recognise as a medieval manuscript, even though they're not that. And also they're editions of books that have been circulating in manuscript for a long time. So what we find in the year 1470 is... Um, Peter Schaeffer, one, one of the people who basically uh, uh, stitched up Gutenberg and stole his press, um, has a book list which his salespeople will take around. They'll travel around Germany. Um, here are the books that you can buy off the press of Peter Schaeffer. And we find an edition of a book by um, Augustine. And on the book list, it says, with a very handy index that will be useful for people who like preaching. So the, here we know in 1470 there's a printed books and it has an index. And in fact, Peter Scherfer thinks that the index is a selling point that, that he will mention in his advertising material. It doesn't mean that there aren't others earlier. But also the thing to say is that the manuscript version of this book might have had an index as well, that the books are trying to see very closely to what uh, manuscript books would have looked like before. They haven't really established themselves as anything very different yet. And when did the word index itself become to mean the table with a point a pointing function? Well, that's a good question. Um, they, they get called all sorts of things in the period I'm talking about, the sort of late uh, um, medieval period, the early modern period. We find them even in English. So we were talking about Caxton here. Caxton calls them basically everything apart from an index. He calls them a register, rubrics. He calls them a table. He calls them a remembrance, which is a, a very interesting idea. Re- remembrance of a book. Um, we we find the word index a bit. Um, in uh, sort of in Latin writing about them, but it doesn't sort of settle down uh, as uh, as indicating what we would think of as an index, uh, as something distinct from a table, until quite late. I think we're talking about the sort of seventeenth century here, when we start to see table at the front and an index at the back. Up until then, the language is very. Sometimes they called a margarita, sometimes they called a pie. Um, there are uh, you know a dozen different names for what we would think of as an index. Mm-hmm. And did Caxton's printed books include indexes at all, or were they unusual? I mean, what I'm trying to get at is, did the index arrive with the printed text as as part of as part of the package, or were indexes only used for certain texts? 
I think not unusual. Um, so Caxton has indexes in, in several of his books. One thing that I just mentioned about the way that Caxton introduces his indexes, Caxton often writes um, prologues to his books saying, here's what you're getting here. Um, and in several of these, he mentions also there's there's an index. And he's quite circumspect about these. He says, and I've added a, a table or rubric um, that will be helpful for you. Once he says, and I've added a remembrance. And I think that's a really useful word for thinking about the way that indexes are, are viewed a remembrance all right well what does that mean how, how is an index a remembrance i suppose what it implies is that once you've read the book and you're trying to remember where a concept you came across appears then this book is, is sort of a, a outsourced remembrance of it um what it suggests is is that there's a d- different way of reading an index which is that you read it before the book that's not a remembrance Caxton's saying this isn't a a, a, um, a, a kind of um, quick way of doing an initial reading. This is a sort of post hoc way of of understanding it. Um, there's another thing that Caxton says in in uh, his edition of Cato as well, which is he says um, he says over and above. He's talking about the he says and I've added a table here, and over and above those contained in this table are many notable commandments, learnings, and profitable pieces of advice that are not in this register or rubric. Well, that's a funny thing to say. I've added an index, but remember, haven't put everything in it. You said earlier on page numbers. We're going to come to page numbers. So when did page numbers become standard in printed books? Round about the start of the 16th century, um, which is quite a gap. Do you remember I said Gutenberg, we're talking about the 1450s? And we see page numbers a little bit over the next 50 years, but not as much as you think. And they aren't standard. They aren't even standard in Caxton's books in in the 1480s. So we have kind of half a century where um, page numbers are not unusual, but they aren't there all the time. But once they start to appear, so again, 1470 is the earliest we see of printed page numbers. Printed page numbers are such a kind of revolution in the way that we can use books. We've been talking about medieval manuscripts. We've been talking about books that are copied out by hand. Now, when people are copying out books, they don't stick to the same pagination. The point is to copy out all the words correctly, but not get them onto the same pages. You might be copying a small book into a big book, in which case you're going to have far fewer pages than your exemplar. Or you might be copying from a big book into a small book. It doesn't matter. People aren't worried about that. So page numbers are not very useful in the in the manuscript period. But when we come to printing, when I can produce an edition of, of a run of four or 500 books. And it takes me, once I've set up all the type, it's only going to take me, uh, say, a day to produce 500 identical or near identical books where all of the same words are going to appear, not on different pages, but the same page. The pages are going to be the same size and the page breaks are going to come at the same point in the text. Wow, suddenly, why don't I number these pages? And then I can say to you, Kate, where are you sitting? You're sitting in... in um, I'm in Somerset. Somerset. And I, I'm in North London, but I could email you and I, I, I could say, you know, you and I have both got a, a, the same a copy from the same edition. You're going to love what's on page 84, knowing that your page 84 is, is on my, but we have this expression on the same page. That doesn't mean anything in the manuscript period. That's a stupid thing to say up until the 1450s. After that, we can really be on the same page. And so the, the first printed page number is in, in uh, a sermon printed in Cologne in 1470. And it totally revolutionises what we can do with books. So indexes have been around by that point for a 
couple of hundred years. But indexes are key to things like paragraph numbers, or I said Bible chapters, things like that. Um, you have to do a bit of extra work in order to have something that you can sort of point to. Suddenly, with page numbers, um, every book has got pages, right? So if I just put a number there and know that oh, this index doesn't apply just to this copy of the book, it applies to this edition of the book. Everybody who's got a, a copy from the same print run is on the same page and indexes start to appear in every type of thing. They appear in song books there. Of course, all of the religious books, um, they appear in medical books. Uh, there's a bit in Orlando Furioso, so... so uh, um, a great Italian epic from about 1516, I think. Um, early on, um, a spell book has been given to um, the English knight. A fairy gives him a spell book, and and you know just you just know that later on in in the story he's going to have to cast a spell. Suddenly he finds himself needing to cast a spell, and he turns to his book and it says, uh, "And uh, how did he know uh, where to find the spell he needed?" Well, he looked it up in the index. So uh, even in uh, um, fairy spell books by, by 1516, you can make a joke about, well, they have an index. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> it's like the first literary appearance of an index. Thinking about alphabetization. So in English, we use the Latin alphabet. I'm a bit shaky here to order how, you know, A, B, C, D, E and so on. That's how we order the um, the entries in an index. Has there been ever any other system for ordering the entries? Or has it always been alphabet? Well, the alphabet is the main one. I, I mentioned earlier uh, gross test. Gross test doesn't put in alphabetical order. Gross test's 440 concepts have their own sort of order. He has, I, I think, maybe nine base concepts. One are ideas about God, one are, are, are living creatures, animals, and so on. And, and, so, and the, the concepts are sort of come under that um but the trouble is you have to know oh, you see I'm, I'm having struggling to remember how that works you have to know gross test thing then in order to know where to look up the idea so it's a very personal approach yeah that's right yeah the great advantage of alphabetical order is that it's uh, um that's universal if you can read you probably learned the order of the letters of the alphabet it's something that everybody knows so that's its real advantage that that it takes something that people a, a terrain that people unquestionably know their way around. So we take cross referencing for granted now and subheadings. And you spoke at the very beginning about chapters. When did the index become more than just a list of words with the page number? When did you index entries start to have their own little subdivisions? At some point during the 18th century, by the start of the 19th century, we find quite sophisticated indexes, particularly indexes to journals. So indexes to uh, um, periodicals uh, start to um, start to look quite uh, sophisticated. Thinking about early 18th century uh, indexes, they're still fairly un unsophisticated in that regard. Um, often you only have uh, um, alphabetization to, to to the first letter. Mm -hmm. So even in early 18th century English indexes, you sometimes find just that the, you know, the C's are just a bucket for everything that starts with a C and, and, and they haven't been kind of put into any. The, uh, the poet John Gay um, in the, the early 1700s has a poem called Trivia. And 
this it, it, it's sort of a mock epic and and uh, about walking the streets of London, getting covered. You know the types you'd encounter, how mucky it is, and this has a, an index, um, and the index is quite funny, and the index sort of has its own kind of jokes and its play in it. And part of that play is is juxtaposition. Part of that play is putting funny things alongside each other. Think think about the order that these things are coming in. Um, Christmas, a season for jet. These are the C's. These all come under C, but you'll see they aren't really um, alphabetical beyond that. Christmas, a season for general charity. Coaches, those that keep them uncharitable. Charity must be pra- most practiced by walkers. Chairs, the danger of them. Coaches attended with ill accidents. Coaches despised by walkers, coaches kept by coxcombs and pimps. So um, what he's able to do there is say that walking is great. People who travel in coaches or own coaches are mostly coxcombs and pimps. Um, It's it's sort of jumble of coaches, charity, chairs, all of which start with C, but but he doesn't put them in the same order. So he can have this joke with with bad ordering there. Yeah, so clearly ordering was a recognised issue with Index at the time, because otherwise, why would he write a poem expecting his readers to understand the joke? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, actually, you do get really good uh, um, alphabetical order going right back to the Middle Ages. So so there's a dictionary in the 1200s that boasts in its, its prologue how I've, I've ordered this at enormous time and expense. <laughs> To, to the last letter, so it's not that uh, um, that nobody's had the idea that this will be more useful if if we put it in uh, alphabetical order into three letters, yeah. all the letters. It's just that a lot of people aren't spending the time and expense <laughs> to do it. Yeah, or don't think it's worth it. So we take for granted in English language books that the index is at the back. Has that always been the case? No, it really hasn't. Um, and in fact, in uh, early printed index would would often appear at the front. Actually, we should just say, that, uh, um, in terms of printing, because the index needs to be printed separately from the rest of the book, because the indexer needs to get the uh, um, the book with all of its page numbers. So the book needs to be printed with page numbers before the indexer can even start producing the index. So the index is printed separately. And that means it can really be bound in wherever you like. You could bind, bind it in at the front or at the back. Okay. Um, so we find in, in early printed books, it seems that it's often appearing um, at the front. When Shakespeare uses the, the, the idea of the index, the word index, he uses it a few times. And usually he means it as, as a kind of prologue. Uh, uh, Gertrude is, is um, telling Hamlet off, um, saying, who, who roars so loud in the index? Um, God, you still haven't got to the point. You're going on and on, but uh, um, we still haven't got to the main text of what your problem is. Um, yeah. So we find, you know, in the sort of late 16th century, like Shakespeare, like uh, um, Marlowe has a couple of references to indexes as well, usually meaning the thing that comes at the front. And then by the early 18th century, it's definitely the thing that comes at the back. There's a, There's an issue of the... Grub Street Journal um, that talks about the way that books have changed over the last hundred years with indexes sort of migrating from front to back. So does that mean the contents list is also a kind of index? Well, the table of contents ends up going where the index, the Grub Street Journal suggests that the the rise of the prologue has meant that 
the prologue now sits where the index used to go and the index has been shifted to the back. The indexer in your book, you say, has not always been trustworthy, which brings us to the people who actually make the indexes. Now, you've talked about Robert Grostes, you've talked about Hugh the Dominican and his team. Do you know, I mean, is it known the name of any early indexers? And do you know any examples where the act of indexing has been a bit subversive? It's not been um, delivering truth in the book. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, there's, there's a, a very early indexer from the early 1300s working in the papal court at Avignon called uh, Jean Houtfounet. I'm tired, sorry, my pronunciation is probably terrible. It's H-A-U-T-F-U-N-E-Y, Houtfounet. He is credited with, with producing the, the enormous index to uh, um, Vincent of, of, of Beauvais' um, speculum. So great big... Uh, um, complicated index. There's a lovely essay about this by Richard Mary Rouse that, that suggests that what he is doing is, is sort of um, producing this index as a kind of way of bringing himself to the attention of the court as, as a sort of career progression thing. Um, also, around the same time in the paper records from Avignon, we find payments being made for the production of indexes, not necessarily to, to, to Jean here, but um, the idea of the professional indexer certainly is around by the, well, we're talking about, say, the 1320s here. Um, and the idea... That is so early. Gosh. Yeah, of a named indexer who's producing an index as a, as a sort of a, um, a smart move for your progression through the uh, um, uh, religious, uh, up the scholastic religious... <laughs> career ladder uh, is there so a we know people who are doing it b we know people are being paid to do it and it's a, a, um which is really interesting we're, we're still talking about a century and a half before print so so the, the profession of the professional indexer is older than the printed book by quite a long way that is wonderful what a lovely thought these are these are earnest people we think you asked about the uh the sort of unreliable narrator i haven't found much of this before the turn of the 18th century, and then suddenly we find loads of it. So something happens around about the, the turn of the 18th century. I'm talking about um, 1698 being, being about the earliest example I can find of this, which is where we have this academic dispute over the translation of a text from Greek. Um, and a man called uh, Richard Bentley reviews a, a recent um, edition of a Greek work and he says the the edition's fine. It's just funny they don't mention that it's obviously a forgery, <laughs> because the the dating says it couldn't have produced been produced five hundred BC. It must be several centuries later because certain textual details. And the people who produced the edition are raging. They're livid. They're aristocrats based around Christchurch Christchurch College in Oxford, and they feel um, badly sort of traduced by this upstart who's not wrong, um, but, uh, but who's sort of humiliated them. And so they write an attack on Richard Bentley. And one of the ways that they attack him is they say, well, you could only notice these tiny little linguistic textual details if you were an index scholar. If you're just reading the thing for its emotion, its beauty, um, you would never come across this type of pedantic detail. So Richard Bentley, you are a pedant and you are an index scholar. And this becomes a really pejorative thing to say. You use alphabetical learning, which is another way of saying you don't 
really read texts you you look up the words in a table and isn't that disgusting that's beneath us and they write a book-length attack on Richard Bentley full of these you know index learning blah 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 mechanical yes mechanical attack that's right that's not how reading or, or scholarship should be you must be wrong because you're a pedant um, and at the back they do an index an index to the book but they say this is an index of Richard Bentley and the entries in the index say things like his uh, his egregious dullness, his pedantry, his familiarity with books that he obviously hasn't seen, um, and so on. So, so it really is a working index. You can jump to, to the page numbers they mention. That, sure, that will be a passage about how pedantic he is. So this is the start of the attack index, and this is the year 1698. And what we find over the next decade is more and more examples of people producing indexes to their rivals' works. So a politician brings out a book about his travels in Italy and he's a he's a Tory politician and a Whig brings out an index of all of the moments where he's stupid or naive or uh, gets things wrong or gets a little bit too close to the Pope who uh, last time I checked is a Catholic and and so on. So so you, you get these sort of indexes that are undermining the uh, the text that they're supposed to be um indexing well i mean they do work they, they are indexing it it's just that the idea of the index being you know essentially supportive or neutral um starts to uh crumble slightly round about the turn of the 18th century you get these so much work put into them <laughs> it's really nice um and then you start to get the, uh, um sort of mock indexes in oh there's a really good one in the early 20th century it's a it's a book of bad poetry an anthology of of bad poetry called the stuffed owl so in practical terms as we've already said the index is the last piece of the book to be assembled before printing because it's constructed around the final arrangements of words on the final numbered pages so the index determines the the page extent of the whole book and it's never known i mean you can allocate say, five pages to an index, but an index might grow and grow and grow. Has there, I mean, do you never, have you ever heard of an index which is actually longer than the main text itself? Um, do you know what? I haven't. That, I, I like that, though. There's something kind of Borgesian about that. So the ideal index would be the, the same size as the book. The, the Bible concordance, for example, has all of the words of the Bible just in alphabetical order. Um, but in fact, the, the key part of the process of preparing an index is choosing which concepts are important and which ones aren't. We can't have um, the map that's as big as the territory. Um, and this, this is problematic. This is one of, the, uh, one of the, the ways that people are suspicious about indexes. I'm going to read you um, a, a note from the back of a book from the 1660s. And instead of an index, there's this uh, note from the bookseller. Um, called Christopher Eccleston, funnily enough. Not, not that Christopher Eccleston. This is 1665. Um, it says, the bookseller to the reader. The reason why there is no table or index added hereunto is that every page in this work is so full of signal remarks that were they couched in an index, it would make a volume as big as the book and so make the postern gate to bear no proportion with the building. So there's that silly idea that well, this book is so perfect that an index would have to literally reproduce every single word and then it should be the gate to the building 
would be the size of the building. Um, I haven't come across anything that that uh, that doesn't employ selection. Um, so so that that is uh, it'd be really fun to find an index that's bigger than the book. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I think that's a really good place to wrap up. Thank you so much, Dennis, for your ramble through indexes. If anybody wants to buy the book, they can just look up Dennis Duncan Index, A History of the, in their favourite bookshop, I suppose. Of course. Yeah. That'd be great. And if people want to get hold of you, how can they do that? Oh, just drop me a line at UCL. If you Google Dennis Duncan UCL, um, then you'll get my departmental homepage and and, and drop us a line. Righty-ho. That's great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kate. 